Welcome to the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. When talking about the built environment, we would do well to remember, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. Therefore, on each episode, we'll discuss the latest trends from my Atmo in plumbing and mechanical safety, sustainability, and resiliency. Join me, your host, Christoph Lohr, and together we'll explore the ways we can make our buildings shape us for the better. Welcome to this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. This is part one of a two-part series where we'll continue our theme of plumbing resiliency and discuss sustainability issues with Emma Hughes, project manager in the lead department at the U.S. Green Building Council, also known as USGBC. Mike Couday, regulation and sustainability specialist for the Plastic Pipe and Fittings Association, also known as PPFA. Susan Kapitanovich-Marr, principal sustainability specialist at Morrison Hirschfeld. And Darren Klein, director of environmental technologies for VAPCO. It's my great pleasure to have a number of folks from the U.S. Green Building Council, both staff and some of their volunteers on the episode with us today. First is Emma Hughes, a lead AP, BD plus C, and true advisor. She's a project manager in the lead department at the U.S. Green Building Council and a proponent of integrated holistic approaches to sustainable design and development. At USGBC, she collaborates with industry stakeholders and networks of diverse volunteer experts to evolve and refine the lead green building rating system. Her work focuses on the intersection of buildings, renewable energy procurement, and net zero goals. Emma supports the technical development of lean green building rating systems requirements for water and energy efficiency and leads development and implementation of the LEED Zero Certification Program. She earned her BS in international relations from Boston University. Emma, welcome to the Authority Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Next up is Mike Couday. Michael works on building and plumbing codes, sustainability, and regulation issues for the piping industry for PPFA and has served on numerous green building and code committees for the past 15 years, including USGBC's LEED program. His background is in chemistry and forensics, and he lives in South Florida. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, it's great to be here for this critical topic. Next up, we have Susan Kapitanovich-Marr. Susan is a sustainability specialist at Morrison Hirschfield, an international engineering consulting company with offices throughout Canada, US, and India. Located in Calgary, Alberta, Susan has over 12 years of experience managing sustainability-focused projects and providing guidance to successfully achieve green building certification targets. She's also the practice lead for green building rating systems and a team lead on third-party lead projects assessments for Canada Green Building Council. She's a professional engineer, a lead AP BD plus C, lead AP O and M, and well AP. And again, her committee involvement includes the Canada Green Building Council, United States Building Council, and the International Well Building Institute. She has her master's in applied science in mechanical engineering and her bachelor's in applied science in chemical engineering from the University of Toronto. And she has graduate studies collaborative program in environmental engineering at the University of Toronto as well. Susan, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Happy to be here. And last but not least, we have Darren Klein, who's the Director of Environmental Technologies for Evapco, responsible for the sustainable application of Evapco's energy-efficient and water-saving products in the industrial, building, and power markets. He's been at Evapco for 31 years. He's a member of the U.S. Green Building Council's Lead Water Efficiency Technical Advisory Group. He's a voting member of ASHRAE Standard 191. He's a member of the ASHRAE Standard 514 and a voting member of ASHRAE Guideline 12-2000. He has his Bachelor's of Science in Physics from West Virginia University and an MBA from the University of Baltimore. He's a lead accredited professional and a member of both the U.S. Green Building Council and ASHRAE. Darren, really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to join us as well. Yeah, thank you, Christoph. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. 
Well, let's go ahead and, and jump right in. And I guess the first question, since we have such a strong contingent of U.S. Green Building Council on the podcast today, I guess let me direct this at Emma. What is the U.S. Green Building Council's overarching principles? Great question. Happy to happy to kick us off today and excited to be joined by the talented volunteers that I work with in my professional capacity at USGBC. The mission of our organization is in a nutshell, sort of sustainable market transformation of the built environment. So we know that better buildings equal better lives. Our most successful tool to date for facilitating the sustainable market transformation has been the LEED Green Building Rating System. So this is a voluntary leadership standard. It's used in more than 170 countries around the globe, and it really represents peak performance in the building industry. And through our 100-point systems of mandatory prerequisite requirements and optional credit strategies. It focuses and really drives at the intersection that buildings have with human health and the the natural environment, as well as provides best practices and strategies for project teams to sort of advocate for a greener economy and enhance sort of community well-being and social equity outcomes, depending on your focus. So, I mentioned that my role is collaborating with with volunteer professionals who serve on lead technical committees. And our technical committees are really the the brain power behind the rating system. They help staff develop and refine the requirements over time. Looking specifically at lead requirements for water, at present, I would say the rating system focuses on efficiency first, the critical need to preserve and protect this vital resource. Our lead water efficiency technical advisory group, or the committee that I work closely with to develop and refine these requirements, is actually right now looking forward to better understand how we can update the requirements to more comprehensively address the host of outcomes that water can touch, including advancing water quality and human health within green buildings. So there's a lot to dig into today, and I'm excited to, to hear more from each of our volunteers on these important topics. I really appreciate the background and context you provided there, Emma. And, and, and you know, I got to say, I, I totally agree with that need to protect and preserve one of our most precious resources. It's really great to hear other industry organizations that, that match up with what IATMO believes in that regard, too. And I also like that point you had mentioned, uh, to paraphrase it, you know, holistic ideas, you know, making sure that we're looking at the problem from all angles. You know, let me, I guess, direct the next question then at Susan, Darren, and Mike. Why did you all decide to volunteer for USGBC and be part of that technical committee? Let's start with Susan. Sure. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been working with the Canada Green Building Council. Uh, you had mentioned in my um, intro, I, I am in Canada, in Alberta specifically, and I've been working with them on the sites and water tag for many, many years. I've also been involved in third-party reviews, so basically evaluating hundreds of submissions, lead submissions. So I've seen what works and what doesn't work um, in terms of guidelines that lead sets. And I and I really wanted to contribute to, to the formation and collaborate with industry experts. And U.S. Green Building Council really does provide that platform of uh, collaborating not just with the U.S. representatives, but international as well and, and looking at problems that you know, we have in Canada with with uh, water efficiency, for example, in that category, but then also contrasting that with worldwide issues. So it's been very enlightening, and it was, it's been actually a great opportunity so far to uh, collaborate with my fellow uh, members and those on this panel. 
it sounds like, you know, with all the work you've done in Canada, you've kind of lived and breathed this and it's, it's maybe a little bit in your blood with the amount of time you've dedicated to this uh, before joining with U.S. Green Building Council. So uh, sounds like a really good match. Yeah, sometimes I, f- I forget who I work for. <laughs> <laughs> um, Darren, what about you? Sure. Um, well, I've been involved with the USGBC since 2004. Uh, we started looking at sustainability, you know, that long ago and I started attending the Green Build shows and, you know, every year they got larger and more exciting and, you know, just the energy around it and around sustainability. And, you know, Evapco makes products that contribute to reducing the energy of buildings, improving the water quality, reducing water usage. So, you know, I really wanted to contribute more. So I applied to the lead technical advisory water efficiency group. And was happy to be offered this volunteer position. And I really enjoy it and enjoy working with Emma and the team and everybody on the call. You know, I'm able to offer my knowledge and experience in the evaporative cooling industry, which offers significant energy savings, water use reduction technologies, and the ability to lower the carbon footprint of a building. So I'm just happy to be a part of it. That's really cool. Well, it sounds like from what you're describing, you know, it's it sounds like uh, your involvement in the U.S. Green Building Council, it's a, it's a good mission fit with your organization, right along with you as a, as a person and professional. Yes, absolutely agree with that. And, you know, um, you know, just getting started early on, it was great because we brought the industry along and they all joined in as well. So everybody's offering, you know, water saving, energy saving technologies. So it's been great industry boost as well. Definitely, definitely. Well, Mike, what about you? Why did you end up volunteering? Well, uh, the, early on the plastic pipe and fitting industry, we realized that green building would be certainly a growing use of our products and also a use of our products in new applications. Sustainable buildings would use more pipe, in other words, not less. So it was, it was critical for us to be engaged at the table of all the different types of organizations uh, that cover this sort of development. And that's, that's IATMO who have the WE stand, GBI, National Green Building Standard from NHB, ASHRAE, IGCC, and of course, uh, USGBC's LEED program. Properly designed piping systems are vital to these green buildings. And improper design would be a serious health and adoption issue. So here we are, and I am uh, very proud of our involvement and work in this space. I would give a special shout out to uh, the We Stand because while a lot of these other programs simply ask you to conserve water or install some certain type of system, the uh, the We Stand goes a little further and tells you how to do that. Well, I definitely appreciate Mike the uh, the shout out for We Stand, which is an IATMO document, and you know I think. Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate your thoughts on that. And and I think that's something that we want to circle around to later, along with kind of that point you made, Mike, which I think is a really important one about collaboration between various industry organizations. But before we get to that, I want to start off with kind of a high level overview and then kind of get ourselves maybe down a little bit more into the weeds and, and focus on some specific examples. Let me direct this first question at Susan, just obviously from your background, you've been involved in a lot of policy and sort of jurisdiction thought processes. What are some of the big picture ideas that policymakers and jurisdictions that they should that they should consider, at least in the realm of water? It sounds like, you know, from some of our previous conversations, there's a number of things that Canada has done that that maybe could be a great sort of context or or example for other jurisdictions and policymakers. Yeah, sure. Um, 
Perfect. I, I actually, I was going to start with Canada and give everyone who's listening a little bit of a history lesson and, and specifically to the water industry. I feel like water has been, and in my profession as a lead consultant and a sustainability consultant, um, kind of in the shadow of energy for a very long time. And I, I couldn't understand why that was for, I mean, there's obvious implications from a, from a cost perspective, but essentially what I came to realize is uh, different from the U.S., Canada hasn't had a real mandate for water efficiency in plumbing that, uh, you know, the U.S. has from your 1994 Energy Policy Act, which basically put a cap on water um, like rates for uh, plumbing fixtures. So we didn't really catch up until 20 years later, essentially. And different from the U.S., we're actually we get a choice. Each province gets a choice on what to adapt and when to adapt it. And if we want to sort of take the national code or uh, make our own um, kind of based on it. So in 2015, we caught up to those minimum fixture standards and that was 2015. And I, I, started working in 2009. So for those first early years, it was lead was really like driving the the push for just selecting water efficient fixtures. And thankfully, now we're seeing jurisdictions, and this comes to your question, uh, Christoph, it's, you know, like we, we see the forerunners in the legislative market actually pushing higher efficiency standards. So I, the first point I want to make is that, you know, our city of Vancouver is probably the most leading edge in terms of water conservation measures. And it all comes from necessity and in recent years. And it's doubled with their uh, uh, charter that they have that enables them to make these bylaws that uh, they could implement, which is different from many municipalities. It, it's a whole political, you know, uh, gong show here. <laughs> but essentially, they are now, so the city of Vancouver has issued its own bylaw effective January of this year that mandates very aggressive flush fixture rates of, you know, 1.2 gallons uh, per flush for toilets, half a gallon for urinals, etc., which are above the, the baseline um, fixtures that, that LEED recommends. So that's an example of, you know, policy from the government actually driving uh, water efficiency from the plumbing fixture um, perspective. But what I've also seen, and again, it's almost a an awakening here in Canada because we've had so much fresh water, we still do in some regions, but we're seeing a lot of impacts from climate change in our water availability. And we're also seeing effects from, you know, downstream in water release and then we're also suffering from some, you know, climate change kind of related sort of effects, which make us really more cognizant of resiliency and adaptation measures. So the two things I wanted to to actually highlight is a is another, this is all coming mostly from BC and Vancouver, but an interesting one is about a uh, new decision made by actually the Vancouver um area, they are actually putting in a basic or more alkaline uh, water supply. And the intent here is to basically in Metro Vancouver, it's a Metro Vancouver's effort to basically um, reduce pipe corrosion. And this is really interesting because, you know, the, the benefit is to reduce the release of, you know, copper from copper pipes that is caused by lower pH water to downstream 
rivers and lakes and oceans, but uh, also it protects, you know, from corrosion. And it, it's a it's a great kind of all round measure. I was also going to say about uh, resiliency. They also have a bylaw for all for the city of Vancouver. They have a city of Vancouver's green buildings policy addresses a resiliency measure, which is basically to ensure that there's a water fountain or a bottle oh. filling station in every building that can run on just city pressure alone without electricity supply. And that's to basically account for that water supply issue that you might see with power outages. So a lot of great things, but I the overall message I think is we can really push bigger change when it comes from, you know, a higher level of policy. And I'm excited to see how that goes with Vancouver. That makes sense. It sounds like the policymakers can kind of help create the conditions, but then let the various jurisdictions come up with specifics that maybe work best for their jurisdiction, just because of some, I imagine because some of the complexity of the water issues varying so much from location to location, but kind of encouraging that, uh, and maybe more than just encouraging some of the, the water saving and, and water considerations from a higher policy level and then allowing the details to be figured out on a more local level. That sounds like it's working pretty well in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, with the increase in alkalinity, this is kind of the law of unintended consequences. Sometimes the policies don't always work for everyone. So with cooling towers, now we can't run high cycles of concentration. And so we can't save as much water. So uh, the alkalinity has posed, at least for the, you know, on the cooling tower side, you know, a challenge in order to maintain the cycles of concentration that are required by the city of Vancouver because they've made this chemistry change. So I just wanted to put that in there as a side note. No, that's a great point, Darren. And I think that kind of speaks to this point that when we as societies or technical committees or, or industry organizations, when we're making decisions, I think that that kind of speaks to the point that it's so important to make sure that all stakeholders have a voice and an ability to to go ahead and, and provide input. There's so many unintended consequences if you don't have that holistic viewpoint from every single angle, you, you might miss something like that. Right. Totally agree. Just wanted to, to chime in. I think Susan did a really nice job of showing us, you know, an example of a code focused on water efficiency and then also talking about other programs or policies putting in place in Canada to underscore or get at those resilience and or human health outcomes. And I just want to confirm or highlight that because I think that reflects a lot of the discussions that we've had as a technical advisory group. There's a lot of interest, I think, among lead committee membership in sort of evolving the focus from a strict water efficiency outcome to looking at water management and use more holistically. So shifting that from, you know, a focus on water efficiency to maybe water stewardship might be a better way to describe that and Mm. encompasses in a more clear way these important interconnections between water efficiency, water quality, and helps daylight opportunities for project teams to focus on resilience and social equity outcomes. You know, actually, my next question was going to be back to you, Emma, on that, which was, obviously, there's a lot of policy, and and Susan gave some great examples of how, you know, the U.S.'s neighbor to the north uh, is handling that. Uh, But I imagine LEAD, you know, in the U.S. Green Building Council is trying to support good water policy as well. You know, and that's through any you know any number of ways. I imagine whether it's it's you know the committees themselves working on criteria or advocacy. Can you speak on either one of those, Emma? 
Yeah, I think I have the best insight into the the technical development side, but I've learned a lot with supporting the committee and just in terms of big, big picture ideas with the relentless focus on water efficiency that we've seen reflected not just in LEED, but in now increasingly other building codes and programs. It's really important to balance water safety and human health considerations, but we know that Really low flow fixtures can lead to stagnation when they're not integrated properly into building plumbing systems and piping. So basically just driving home the point that there's many interconnections here and additional items to consider. I, I don't know if I can speak specifically to the advocacy efforts in this space that are up to date as of now. So Mike is a wealth of knowledge on this topic. I might even tee this up for him. So, Mike, as Emma kind of was pointing it towards you, what are some examples that policymakers should be aware of when they're considering policy designs? I love the stewardship of water. I think we've kind of focused a little too much on the conservation without looking at how that may impact other sides of things. Water, water is life, right? And it's so ubiquitous that we notice its absence more than its presence. We really take it sort of as a as a simple substance and we take it for granted because we've done so well at managing it for so many years, but but things have changed. It's complex, it's even dangerous if you don't, if you don't manage it correctly. And, and we still have examples of that. So we still have outbreaks of things like Legionella. Uh, we had the lead and flint issue when they changed their water supplies, corrosion issues originating from maybe changes in disinfectant or water source. And we do see people changing their water sources. So the unintended consequence thing pops up really quickly uh, because there's so many factors. So certainly the chlorination of water mm. supplies was one of man's most beneficial acts starting in the early 1900s. And by mid-century, we defeated basically waterborne disease in the U.S. It was basically, we outplumbed it. But disinfection byproducts as a result of disinfection have their own unique hazards, right? So you can't overdo uh, the chlorination. One could decide to control Legionella with extreme water temperatures, but the, there are unintended consequences there as well, involving things like uh, material wear and corrosion and certainly thermal injury to occupants. We don't want to thermally scald uh, young people, the disabled or elderly people. Uh, so one of my objectives over the many years has been to instill in others in, in the water industry that it has to be a holistic approach to water quality and design. For the last few years, NIST, the folks at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they've been sort of trying to piece together what sort of research needs to be done, like they did early work in design in, in the 1940s. There's a lot of parameters and you can't just optimize for one. So examples, there are multiple types of pathogens. It's not just Legionella. Uh, there are corrosion issues, water age, pipe scaling. I think we mentioned issues with uh, cycling and cooling towers with higher salt contents, disinfectant residuals, temperature, what kind of temperatures do you run up on that? Water waste, obviously, flow velocity, biofilms, pH, uh, and of course those disinfectant byproducts. And you can't just optimize for one variable. You've got to study them all. Now that makes sense. Well, and that makes me think back to Darren's comment earlier about alkalinity, right? You know, and how that can affect cooling towers. And I guess, Darren, do you have any, any other thoughts or do you want to add to what Mike was saying as regard of, you know, kind of examples policymakers should be thinking about? Sure. Yeah, with this, uh, you know, the lead safety first credit, uh, reducing occupant exposure risk to that degraded water quality, I think adopting that, you know, in local jurisdictions would be very beneficial. You know, you want to have healthy water in your building. And like Mike said, you have all these variables and changes. 
And you need to really be on top of that. And we saw that, especially with COVID, with water, you know, moving slower in the buildings or not moving at all. It's a big example in Cleveland where, you know, 20% of their buildings had a 75% drop in water usage. So they weren't getting chlorine, um, disinfectant byproducts were building up. And so, you know, we have to adjust to that and be aware of that as a smart building owner. Definitely, definitely. And it's interesting because, you know, there's this interlinking between all these variables within water. And, and I think for so many years, we've we've kind of looked at water quality tending to focus on that 0.5 feet outside the building, at least in the U.S., where utilities and civil bring the water up to the building. And then we kind of seem to have forgotten about water quality as it's come into the building. And my sense is that the last, especially five, 10 years, the plumbing industry has really made a concerted effort to try to identify these issues and learn water quality. Absolutely. That concludes part one of our two-part episode with Emma, Mike, Susan, and Darren. Join us next week when we'll continue our conversation and discuss the history of plumbing, the decay of residual disinfectants in water, water quality issues caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, and how to help lawmakers understand the complexity of water. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. Love this episode of the podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please follow us on Twitter at AuthorityPM on Instagram at The Authority Podcast or email us at iatmo at iatmo.org. Join us next time for another episode of The Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. In the meantime, let's work together to make our buildings more resilient and shape us for the better.